Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. The avoidance of adverse drug-drug interactions is a high priority both in terms of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the individual prescriber. With this perspective in mind, this article illustrates the process for assessing the risk of a drug causing or being the victim of drug-drug interactions in accordance with FDA guidance. Drug-drug interaction studies for the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor desvenlafaxine conducted by Pfizer and published since 2009 are used as examples of the systematic way that the FDA requires drug developers to assess whether their new drug is either capable of causing clinically meaningful drug-drug interactions or being the victim of such drug-drug interactions. In total, eight open-label studies tested the effects of steady-state treatment with desvenlafaxine, 50 to 400 milligrams per day, on the pharmacokinetics of cytochrome 2D6 and or 3A4 substrate drugs, or the effect of cytochrome 3A4 inhibition on desvenlafaxine pharmacokinetics. In patients taking multiple medications, the risk of drug-drug interaction increases with the number of medications prescribed. Patients treated for depression are significantly more likely to receive greater numbers of medication compared with patients taking non-antidepressant drugs and therefore are at increased risk for clinically significant drug-drug interactions. Clinicians treating patients taking multiple medications should understand the importance of assessing the risk for clinically significant drug-drug interaction in new drugs and be familiar with the process by which that assessment is made. Medical writing support was funded by Pfizer. Zolepidem is one of the most prescribed agents for insomnia in the United States. In January 2013, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued a drug safety communication informing healthcare professionals of new data regarding the risk of next morning impairment and motor vehicle accidents in non-elderly women taking zolepidem, especially at doses higher than 6.25 milligrams. The FDA also set forth new dosing recommendations for zolepidem in women. The purpose of this month's continuing medical education offering is to measure the impact of the drug safety communication on zolepidem dosing in women. This is a retrospective, observational cohort of new prescriptions dispensed to non-elderly women from a regional pharmacy chain in North Carolina between April and September 2012 and April and September 2013. Data were analyzed for compliance with FDA recommendations for zolepidem dosing. A significant change in compliance was observed overall among prescriptions dispensed to women after the FDA alert, a result that remains significant when adjusted for possible confounders of location and prescriber type. 
Analysis of location and prescriber subgroups also resulted in significant increases in compliance. Even with a significant increase in compliance post-FDA alert, 85% of prescriptions dispensed to non-elderly women were not in compliance with current recommendations. A threefold decrease was also observed in the volume of Zolepidem prescriptions dispensed versus total prescription volume for the pharmacy chain, indicating possible therapeutic substitution among patients not included in the drug safety communication. The authors conclude that more individualized education for patients and prescribers is a possible solution to ensure the appropriate application of FDA drug safety communications. New evidence for the use of genetic testing to improve psychiatric patient care is emerging. In this naturalistic study by Brennan and colleagues, the authors evaluated the use of a genetic test, the Genesept assay, to help guide clinical treatment decisions to improve treatment outcomes for psychiatric patients. These data, while preliminary, show that the majority of patients whose clinicians used the assay showed overall improvement in treatment outcomes. Significant improvement in depression and anxiety symptoms and quality of life, as well as a decrease in the total number of side effects to medications, were also observed. Clinicians found that the assay helped to inform their treatment decisions and improve their confidence in those decisions. The authors conclude that a randomized controlled trial is needed to confirm and extend these findings. However, this study adds to the growing body of literature indicating that genetic testing could be a useful tool to improve patient care in everyday psychiatric clinical practice. This study was funded by Genomind. Although binge eating disorder is the most prevalent eating disorder, the impact of untreated binge eating disorder is underappreciated. This review by Sheehan and Herman describes the relationship of binge eating disorder to physical and mental health, quality of life, and functionality. Binge eating disorder is now recognized in the DSM-5 as a distinct eating disorder. Binge eating disorder is characterized by recurrent binge eating episodes, during which more food is consumed than is typical for most people during a discrete period of time, and by feelings of loss of control over eating and marked distress. To be diagnosed with binge eating disorder, Binge eating episodes must occur at least once a week for a minimum of three months and must not be associated with recurrent inappropriate compensatory behaviors, such as purging or excessive exercise. It is important for primary care physicians to be aware that binge eating disorder is associated not only with medical comorbidities, such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, and dyslipidemia, but also with mental health comorbidities, such as anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. The medical and mental health comorbidities that are associated with binge eating disorder can lead to decreased quality of life, an impaired ability to function in daily life, and to increased health care utilization. 
Shire Development LLC provided funding to complete healthcare communications for support in writing and editing this article. It is important to assess quality of life in individuals with eating disorders because it provides information about how an individual is experiencing his or her eating disorder, serves as a proxy for assessing quality of care and clinical effectiveness, and has come to influence insurance reimbursement decisions for medical care. The authors of this article examine the quality of a broad range of life domains using both quantitative and qualitative methodologies. 48 individuals seeking inpatient treatment for an eating disorder from 2007 to 2009 completed the Quality of Life Inventory and the Eating Disorder Examination Questionnaire. A medical chart review confirmed diagnosis and treatment history. Patients diagnosed with anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa were compared. Body mass index, treatment history, number of comorbid psychiatric conditions, and eating disorder severity were used to predict quality of life. Finally, an inductive content analysis was performed on qualitative quality-of-life inventory responses to contextualize the quantitative findings. Across several life domains, individuals seeking treatment for anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa appear to have similar levels of satisfaction, as evidenced by numeric and descriptive responses. Satisfaction with relatives, however, appears to differ between groups and suggests a specific target for intervention among patients in treatment for anorexia nervosa. The use of quantitative and qualitative assessments, such as the Quality of Life Inventory, provides more clinically meaningful, contextualized information about quality of life than traditional self-report assessments alone. Family relationships and support significantly influence eating disorders patients' quality of life. Both quantitative and qualitative assessment, including importance of life domains, offer valuable information about a patient's quality of life. It is well known that psychiatric patients, especially those with schizophrenia, have short life expectancies. The main cause of death in the United States for individuals with schizophrenia is coronary heart disease. Stroke and coronary heart disease are main causes of death in the general population of Asia and Japan. Thus, Kinsaki and colleagues investigated cerebral vascular disease in psychiatric patients in Japan, specifically looking at brain magnetic resonance imaging and lipid and glucose metabolism. This cross-sectional study was performed from January 2012 to December 2013 and included 152 hospitalized patients. The patient diagnoses were schizophrenia, mood disorder, and other mental disorders. The authors checked physical status, metabolic status of glucose and lipid levels, and brain MRI within one week of admission. Psychiatric patients in this study had increased silent brain infarction accompanied with atherosclerotic risk factors, such as high diabetes prevalence and low-density lipoprotein cholesterolemia. 
The causes of high prevalence of risk factors in psychiatric patients are thought to be related to their lifestyles and antipsychotics administered. The authors conclude that clinicians need to check and treat risk factors to prevent atherosclerotic diseases when examining psychiatric patients. The number of geriatric and older individuals with a substance abuse disorder, especially abuse of cocaine and heroin, is on the rise. Despite this known trend, substance abuse remains underestimated, underidentified, underdiagnosed, and undertreated in this population. Cocaine use is associated with multiple medical consequences in older individuals, including higher rates of hypertension, pulmonary issues, myocardial infarctions or spasms, cerebrovascular accidents, and cognitive impairment. In this article, Dr. Yarnell reviews the latest literature related to cocaine abuse in later life, as well as international guidelines for addiction. She also presents three cases of cocaine use in patients over the age of 50 who were all seen by one provider within a 10-day span in 2013. As trends in use change, clinicians need to better recognize cocaine use in older individuals and adjust screening protocols accordingly. Substance treatment programs should prepare for a growing number of older individuals, requiring treatment and all the potential needs, medical and other, that these individuals will require. Vitamin D and its role in bone health are well known. Recent evidence suggests that vitamin D may also have a plausible role in brain function and mental health. Several studies have found low vitamin D levels in the general population with approximately 42% having a vitamin D deficiency. The purpose of this study was to describe the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in persons with serious mental illness. Data for this study were collected using a retrospective review of medical records from a state hospital from July 2012 through August 2013. The main outcome measure was prevalence rate of vitamin D deficiency in the target population. Vitamin D deficiency was defined as a level less than or equal to 20 nanograms per milliliter. Study subjects were predominantly young white males with a serious mental illness such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, or psychosis. Of the 85 subjects who were studied, approximately two-thirds had a vitamin D deficiency. To the author's knowledge, this is the first report on the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in the southern United States. Findings from this study, along with findings from several other studies across the world, suggest that individuals with serious mental illness are a high-risk group. Vitamin D deficiency is a recognized medical condition that can easily be corrected. Because on average, individuals with serious mental illness have more physical problems and die 25 years earlier than the general population, routine screening and correction of vitamin D deficiency in this population are reasonable. Approximately one in three patients in dermatology settings has a psychiatric comorbidity. 
Thus, the authors of this study conducted a survey in Turkey to explore the awareness, knowledge, practicing patterns, and attitudes of dermatologists toward psychocutaneous disorders. This questionnaire-based study included 115 dermatologists. The questionnaire consisted of nine multiple-choice questions and two open-ended questions. More than 85% of dermatologists indicated that they examined greater than 30 patients per week in their practice, while only 2% saw less than 10 patients per week. The most frequent dermatologic condition associated with psychiatric involvement seen by dermatologists was acne. The top three diagnoses referred by dermatologists to psychiatrists were psoriasis, alopecia areata, and puritis. Psychodermatology is an emerging subspecialty, a need for collaboration between primary care, psychiatry, and dermatology disciplines in handling patients with psychocutaneous conditions is widely accepted. Investigating the knowledge, attitudes, and awareness of dermatologists about psychocutaneous disorders might contribute to the development of new educational strategies and elicit qualified biopsychosocial approaches. Treatment of depression in pregnancy is a topic identified by many providers as difficult, given the lack of randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies in this population and often conflicting evidence regarding risks to the fetus and unborn child. Further complicating matters, women who choose to take psychiatric medications in pregnancy are thought to be more likely to have more severe depressive or anxiety symptoms, therefore contributing to their choice to continue psychotropic agents in pregnancy rather than to discontinue them. This makes it even more difficult to discern if any complications are due to the underlying psychiatric disorder or the psychotropic agents. This article from our rounds in the general hospital section reviews several clinical questions that often arise in the treatment of depression during pregnancy and gives the reader an evidence-based framework to provide patients the best care possible. Read this article and others from our Rounds in the General Hospital section at primarycarecompanion.com. As publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders, it gives me great pleasure to announce the launch of a state-of-the-art online job platform to serve our readers. The CNS job market is now open for business at cnsjobmarket.com. Our goal is to serve both job candidates who seek career choices within the CNS arena and employers who seek qualified health care professionals. Just as you rely on the primary care companion for CNS disorders for trusted content, now you can rely on us for career opportunities and recruitment needs. The CNS job market employs the latest innovative technology to make searching for the right job and the right candidate easier. All services such as resume posting, advanced searching, social media integration, and job alerts are free to job seekers. And for employers and recruiters, we offer a range of multimedia advertising opportunities, outreach options, and candidate matching at affordable pricing. 
Visit us at cnsjobmarket.com, where skilled healthcare professionals and outstanding opportunities meet. We are excited to offer a digital flip page edition of this issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This turn page format will give you the feel of holding a print journal in your hands while allowing you to seamlessly navigate from article to article. We hope you will take a look at our new digital journal as we think you will like it. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings and the opportunity for continuing medical education credit as well as many timely case reports a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.